if you were here last week or were able to listen online, how great a job did Daniel Wagner do bringing the word? Wasn't that great? You're clapping in vain because he's not here today. He's with our, our young people. A lot of our middle school and high school students are serving in the Delta in Marks, Mississippi, along with Reclaim Project, doing a good work there. And they sent a memo, the chaperone sent a memo this morning to our church just uh, letting us know how good it is that some of your kids are hanging out with a couple of my kids just so they can see a great work ethic and godly character. So that memo came just moments ago. Hey, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 this morning. If you want to turn there, if you have a black ESV study Bible in the pew in front of you, it's page 916, but you don't have to. We'll be putting those verses up on the screen in just a little bit. This morning, I have an agenda. I want to be upfront about it. Today, it is my hope and it's my prayer that you would leave here. And you would leave here today with a greater sense that God is able. You know, in a gathering in Matthew and later in Acts, it says when, when the people gathered that some worshipped and some doubted. And I thought of that as a pastor and kind of as an older guy now, that it, that's kind of always true. When people gather, some worship and some doubt. I don't know that that's, that's ever going to change. In Acts, we learned that they were cut to the heart. They heard the word and they were cut to the heart. What, what do we need to do? How do we respond? But some were indifferent and some were antagonistic. But this morning it is my hope that every willing heart, every open mind would leave today with a sense that God is able. God is able. God is able even in that thing that's hardest in your life. Even in the thing that's most difficult perhaps that maybe you've given up on that you're even afraid now to talk about. It's just a secret nagging, gnawing hurt within. I pray today that you leave with a greater sense of hope and optimism fueled by this reality that God is able. Our God is able to create. I talk to many of you who go through periods of doubt like I have and there's that, just that doubt in your mind of these supernatural things that occur in Scripture. And I, I've landed at a place where I believe that if God created, if he can bring something out of nothing, nobody can do that. If he can bring something out of nothing, and by the way, why is there something? If he can do that, he can do anything else. And it just opens and sort of fertilizes the soil of my heart to lean into the supernatural work that God has done in the past and the work that God wants to do in our midst today, even in my own life. I'm trusting God for things. Are you? I mean, I'm crying out to him for some things in my life. Anybody else? Anybody? Our God is able. Thank you. Our God is able. Our God is able to create. Whether you're in the front or the back, sitting on the bottom level or up in the balcony, well, here's something we have in common. We're all sitting on a planet that's spinning on its axis at almost 1,000 miles per hour, and we're speeding through space at a speed of 67,000 miles an hour. If you were to say one day this summer, well, I didn't do much today, I would say, well, you did travel 1.3 million miles. How many, of you, how many of you thank God for that today? Our God is able. He has the power. He's able to create. He's able to stop the unstoppable. A young man named Daniel was put into a lion's den. God is able to stop the mouth of the lion. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A few other guys were put in a fiery furnace. God was able to stop the burn. Able to stop the fire. Even while they were in the furnace. The children of Israel were needing to get across the sea. And God stopped the wall of water. He stopped the flow 
of water. God's able to stop the storm with a word and a giant with a slingshot. And he can make the sun stand still. He did that one day when Israel needed more time. Our God is able to create. Our God is able to stop the unstoppable. Our God is able to guide the misguided. He guided the children of Israel with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. There was a young man named Samuel who was confused and God spoke to him and gave him a word in the middle of the night. He guided Moses through thunder at Mount Sinai. He guided a man named Paul and he directed him to Macedonia. And lo and behold, the gospel goes to Europe. He guided Philip into to the Ethiopian government official. And lo and behold, the gospel goes to Africa. God is able to create. He's able to stop the unstoppable and guide the misguided. He's able to give might to the humble. He gave Esther confidence and Joseph humility. He gave Moses eloquence. He gave Solomon wisdom, Samson strength. He's able to give might to the humble. And hear me this morning, he's able to humble the mighty. A man named Pharaoh was hard-hearted and stiff-necked. And he was opposed to God and his people. And God sent ten plagues, one after the other. And God released his people. He set them free. A man named Nebuchadnezzar was surveying his kingdom. I hung out with a coach recently with a turf management degree and we were surveying his ball field. And he was like, look at my empire. There's a man named Nebuchadnezzar who led a much more expansive empire, the Babylonian empire. Look at what he said one time long ago. Is this not the great Babylon I have built? God gave him over to insanity. By the way, in an age where mental health is a crisis, where some of the smartest minds are studying how we can control our mind, I just want to say today, sanity is a gift from God. And this man named Nebuchadnezzar, for seven years he lived like a wild animal. He ate grass. And it says this about him. His hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Did anybody, was anybody out yesterday afternoon on an old Canton Road where it connects with Avondale? Did anybody see the eagle? Raise your, Paul and Steph, okay, I'm, I have someone to corrupt. No, that's it. There was a grand eagle that stopped many of us, and it's, I've never seen anything like it. Right there on old Canton, and I, pull, I, I broke the law and did a U-turn really quick. And others were kind of doing the same thing. I, I guess I set the precedent. And Paul's a better photographer than I. He and Stephanie, his wife, got out. We're taking pictures and video. So, uh, so regal was the eagle. I'd never seen anything like it. No, for real, I, I had to stop. It's one of those things you got to stop. And I stopped and got out and just was watching this thing and we learned, right, that this regal eagle, the mac daddy of all birds, was just sitting on a squirrel, just crushed the squirrel. And was sitting there and he wasn't worried about any passerbyers, right? I mean, I went to Nukes and 45 minutes later I came back, he was gone by then. But I was texting pictures. It was just the coolest thing. If You're the eagle. Squirrel, not so much. Man, I'm, be, I'm glad to be human, glad to have a truck and be able to drive to nukes, are you? But this Nebuchadnezzar, this man who surveyed his Babylonian empire, he lost his sanity. And after seven years, God restores his sanity. But God says this, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. I want to tell you this morning that God is able. God is able to create. God is able to stop the unstoppable. He is able to direct the misdirected. And he is able 
to give might to the humble and to humble the mighty. And he is able, as Acts is teaching us, to give power to those who wait on him. Jesus started this movement unlike the world has ever seen with a ragtag group of people, with uneducated, unlearned fishermen and carpenters and such. And he told those disciples to wait. History tells us they waited in an upper room. There was only 120 of them at the time, and they waited, and 40 days later, the power came. And what happened? Rich people became generous, and they gave to the poor. Scripture tells us there were no needy people among them. How beautiful is that? Ethnic walls broke down. Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, lived together in love. Men and women began to treasure each other as brothers and sisters. Orphans and widows were cared for. The least of these got honored. The gospel was preached and it cut to the heart and hardened sinners found needed grace. And that's where we are in this story today. But let me, do, let me tell you this. That this movement that Jesus started that just really took off. I mean, we're, we're looking at the first 30 years of the church. And this movement that started with, was, was, it was not without difficulty, without opposition, without persecution. In Acts 5.29, words that inspired Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights era in the deep south. It says this, but Peter and the apostles, they answered, we must obey God rather than men. You see, Peter and John were put in prison a few times. Stephen, we were introduced to last week, was stoned. But we ought to obey God rather than men. I asked you a few weeks ago what you pray for. What we don't see in Acts is people praying for little petty things. We see them praying for boldness that they may be used. Because only those who are on mission have joy and have life. Awaken us, Lord. To that reality. So we see in Acts chapter 8. Let's go back a little bit for context. Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. Here it is. And Saul approved of his great of his execution. That's Stephen. The first Christian martyr. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria. Except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Funerals, by the way, were so different then. Well, Saul was, here's our, here's our guy, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's who we're introduced to today. Saul that becomes Paul. So Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, let's look at it. Now as he was, went on his way, Paul, Saul, he approached Damascus and suddenly... Many of us have heard this story. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Here's this guy. He's persecuting the church. And notice what it says in verse 4. Jesus' conversation with him, there was this question, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting them? Why are you persecuting it? Why are you persecuting the institution? He says, why are you persecuting me? And let's stop there for a second. And my job is not to make everybody feel comfortable every Sunday. 
But let me just say this because I hear something that's prevailing, especially among our young people. But Jesus, I want to say to you, Jesus calls the church his bride. And you can't love Jesus and not love his bride. Any more than you could say to me, hey, Robert, we think you're great. Why don't you come over for dinner tonight? But Susan, eh, we don't like her. Let her stay at home. You, you couldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. Number one, she's more likable, lovable than me. That just would never happen. Poor illustration. But you get what I'm saying, right? To love me is to love my bride. Last week I stood here and presided over the wedding of all weddings. And there was, uh, Laura knows this, but there were people getting here an hour and a half early. And I stood here with, with Byron Green Burkhalter. And he stood with me, but when Britt Buchanan walked down that aisle, he, he left me and the other minister, and he walked right over there. I'll, I'll show you what he did. He stood. He was standing right here, but it wasn't enough because hundreds were standing. And Byron, what did he do? He did this. He walked right here, breaking all the rules of decorum. He stood right here. And Britt and her dad got here. He turned with them. Why did he do that? He wanted to see his bride. I was watching him watch his bride he wanted to see her he loves her that's Jesus with the church I want to say to you find a church and commit to that church invest in it and be a part of that church why are you persecuting hey Saul Saul why are you persecuting me Jesus I think you could say takes it personally by the way, it's difficult when we become successful. It's difficult when power becomes ours, but the gospel at its core is subversive. It's countercultural. It's for the weak and for the marginalized, and it disrupts political systems and ideologies. It always has. I believe it always will. But it's one of the most compelling studies in the world today. The church is flourishing where there's persecution. Last week or the week before, I held up a copy of Christianity Today that it said Cambodia, where the church is thriving and the sex industry is crumbling. And one of our very own, a recent Jackson Prep graduate, is in Cambodia now serving alongside our Hard Places ministry, fighting sex trafficking right there in the Boys and Girls Club, right there in the epicenter of it all. And on July 13th, uh, we'll have 10 more people to go and join her to serve. We're just a little minutia, just a microscopic inkling, iota of part of what God is doing, but he's working. And God works in the midst of this persecution. Why are you persecuting me? Another important observation question is this man named Ananias. No, not the one who died from Acts chapter 5, but another Ananias, a name that means the grace of God. This man in verse 13 had an observation that I think typifies the church today, you and me. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Here's Ananias. I'm just giving you a part of the story. You're going to read it later, right? But God gives this message to Ananias for Saul, the one who this bright light shone on him and he lost, temporarily lost his vision. He, he was blind for a few days and God through Ananias is saying, hey, go to him and I'm going to do a work through him. And Ananias is like, he's just clarifying with some facts, right? Now listen, with God, when you wrestle with God, you can bring your facts to him, okay? You can bring your plan to God. 
But God's plan is greater than yours. God's facts, his vision, and his dreams are many, many times over greater than our arsenal of facts. And Ananias brings these facts to God. He goes, that guy, do you know what he's doing? He's dragging men and women out. Him? I want to say to you, let's love the church. But let's not be the church full of Ananias's. Not terribly good English, but you know what I'm saying there. Let's not be those people. Let us believe in the redemptive potential of everybody. When our church started uh, almost six years ago, we started our our church. uh, Many of you know, some of you were there. We started it in a bar. And I've always prayed that we moved here in the midst of this beautiful place and these pews and stained glass and steeples that we would not lose the edge of who participates and worships with us. And I remember early on someone said to me, hey, Robert, did you see who was at church today? That guy was on the news. He's been in jail. And I said to him, man, don't worry about it. God's grace reigns supreme. Somebody else said to me early on, Robert, did you see that dude at church today? I know he's involved with some heavy drugs. I said, man, leave that alone. God is good. Somebody said to me, Robert, did you see her? She's a stripper. I said to him, how do you know she's a stripper? (laughs) I want to say to you today, Let's not be that church. God is able. He is able truly to change the hardest of hearts. So today, I want to give you, this is the bulk of it, and we're going to move quickly. I want to give you four signs of conversion. Four signs of conversion. Let's learn from Saul, who becomes Paul. The first is a crisis and let me say because as we walk through this this book we're learning we're trying to learn what is prescriptive versus what is descriptive prescriptive is for everybody at all times all cultures all places descriptive is hey here's what happened in this story listen learn but this is what happened to this guy so it may not be for all people all times all places right you get that but here god uses a crisis in his light this this bright light it suddenly shown on him but I want to say this later if you want to read and study this in Acts 26 almost one of the last chapters there's 28 chapters in this book but Acts 26 Paul recounts and gives some extra added layers to his conversion in Acts chapter 9 and he describes himself as the Pharisee of all Pharisees by the way we'll get into this later this summer but this dude I submit to you is one of the smartest people who has ever lived Now, God chooses to use the unlikely. He doesn't always take the 4.0, the best man, the the greatest in the class, the brightest and the beautiful. We see him using a ragtag group of people more often than not. But at this time and this place, God said, hey, we're going to take the gospel to some places. It's going to be urban and sophisticated and cosmopolitan. And I love those tax collectors and fishermen. I love those pastors and elders and shepherds. But I need a leader. I'm going to use this really educated guy. But what blinded Paul? It was religion. Can I say it again, Mississippi? What blinded Paul? What was it? It's religion. It was being a Pharisee of Pharisees. Circumcised on the eighth day. Studying under the greatest of mentors. Knowing the law. On and on and on and on. But he, it was his religion 
his religion that blinded him. But God used a crisis. In Acts 26, that's where I was. In Acts 26, it says, Paul says, I kicked against the goads. Now, no one is going to use that phrase. No one in our day is going to use that phrase. But I think it's good understanding and insight for us. A goad was an instrument that farmers used. It's, free, it's talked about frequently in Greek and Latin literature. A goad was made out of a slender piece of tinder. It was timber. It was blunt on one side and pointed on the other. And farmers in their field would use it. Which end would they use with the stubborn oxen? The pointed end. And they would use it to goad their farm animals into motion. And sometimes the stubbornness of animals would do the stupidest thing. They would kick against the goad. And that was a bloody mess. And Paul is using that imagery of saying, I kicked against the goad. So, so don't think as you read Acts chapter 9 that this was just all about suddenness. That out of nowhere God did something. You see, God was working in Paul's life. There were goads. There were things that he is putting in his life to move him toward himself. This thing and that thing. And I bet there were times when it was a blunt side of the goad. And other times it could have been the pointed side of the goad. Paul says, man, I, let me tell you my testimony. And that's what a church should be about, by the way. Every time we get out of rows and into circles, we circle up and we tell our story. Hey, let me tell you what life was like. And I kicked against the goads. God used things. And even though we see the suddenness of this experience on the road to Damascus, there was something God was doing over time. He had been working on his heart for a long time. I wonder today about you. What goads, what bluntness, what pointedness is God using to get you to, to him? And God will often use a crisis. In life, you know this. This is about to be pretty intense, pretty imminent for me, very personal. But in life, new chapters often begin with an orientation. New school, new job, orientation. You know this, right? Tomorrow... My oldest son heads to college orientation. Some of you are asking me, are you ready for this? No. I mean, I'm fine emotionally. It's financially. So if you guys just give, <laughs> you guys give big today, right? Just one big day. In life, a new chapter begins, often with an orientation. But God, God uses disorientation to begin a work in us he oftentimes disorients us so that we can truly be oriented for what he has for us that's his work and God used this crisis it wasn't just Paul Saul thinking here I am on this road to Damascus and all of a sudden it's going to be different I had sight and now I don't. By the way, I have a friend who a couple of years ago, he went to bed with full vision. He woke up with no vision in one eye. How sudden is that? My friend freaking out, wouldn't you? Paul, Saul's got to be freaking. Three days. And God, we learn, will remove those scales. But he disoriented this light. I mean, I like the kind of light that shines and it's all illuminated and I know the path, Right? But this was a light that was disorienting and blinding. And God will do that. I don't think many experiences happen like this today, to be honest with you. We can argue all day on that. 
I'm just telling you what I believe. But here, I think we can learn that God oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, will use a crisis. And he kept doing that. If you ever go to seminary, you'll learn not just Genesis through Revelation. They'll teach you about the back of the Bible. They'll teach you about maps. You have to study maps. You take classes on maps. Doesn't that sound fun? And you'll learn as you study maps. You'll learn about Paul, about his first and second and third missionary journeys and how all of this is connected and these cities and how important they were. And it just sheds light on why did he say this at Galatia and Thessalonica and in, in Athens and these places. It's really good to learn these things. But you'll learn. That God often would disorient Paul. He arrived at Athens, but he should have been in Thessalonica, but a Jewish mob ran him out of town. He traveled to Troas because the Holy Spirit closed a door in Bithynia. He ended up on an island called Malta because he was shipwrecked at sea. Often God will disorient us to move us to a new chapter. Now, I know these men, because they're men, they struggled with the work that God was doing initially in their lives. But thank God for Philip, because he used him to take the gospel to Africa and for Paul to Europe and all places beyond. Not only does God use a crisis, secondly, we see another sign of conversion is surrender. If I had to put another word there, I would ask you to consider the word help. Several years ago, I preached at a church where it was very common for them to talk back. Now, some of you may think, well, boy, that's distracting. I don't like that. Actually, I love it. I really do. And they, it was common if the sermon was going well, it was common for them to say, preach it. That's it. That's right. Bring it. If the sermon wasn't going well, it was common for this congregation to pray a prayer out loud. Lord, Jesus, help him. I knew that day I needed help, but I did not want to hear that prayer out loud. Sometimes in my life, I know I need help, but I don't want to admit it. And I want to say this today because some of you need to be reminded of this. If when you need help, you do not call out for help. If you do not seek help, then something small will oftentimes become something really big being over budget can lead to much debt and shame procrastination could turn into unemployment your sarcastic tongue and tone of negativity could eventually leave you friendless that flirtation at the office that could lead to temptation and an affair something small when you need help, I talked to us a few weeks ago as a church family about the power of confession. And I said, it's easy for us to circle up and to say, oh, here's something I did 10 years ago. And that may give you a good conscience and a softer pillow to sleep on. But it doesn't so much help you day to day. But when we get together and we look at each other, trusted friend, a trusted friend, and we say, here's what I need help with today. Here's my pain, here's my problem, here's my temptation. Would you enter into this with me? Because there's power when we move out of the darkness and into the light. And there's this surrender. Alex Haley, do you know who he is? He wrote what? He wrote Roots. And in his office it is told that there is a picture, a beautiful picture of a turtle on a fence post. And when people come in, it was Alex Haley's intention 
for them to ask, why is that turtle on the fence post? Some of you know this. He would say, if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, you know that somebody helped him get there. Who needs help? Everybody. Everybody. Surrender. I don't think this proud Pharisee, this intellectual giant, this towering figure of his day knew that he needed help until this crisis hit him. But then he cried out. Blindness can do that. Sometimes some of you will call me and you just want to hang out. That's pretty cool. But a lot of times it's just the role of a pastor. I signed up for it. I'm not griping. But many times I'm with you and it's because you need to talk. I welcome it. It's a good thing. I need that. How often do you hear me say every pastor needs a pastor? I've got one. I've got two. And I call them way more often than you know. But when you're blind, when you know you need help, there's this opportunity to cry out and to say help. I thought deeply about this word help this week. When a child is born, they often will say help. It's one of the first words that they learn. Nick Crawford just had their second baby about, what, two weeks ago. A little baby will say help and say it often. Help me. Help me get dressed. Help me eat. Help me go potty. And if parents live long enough, there'll be a day when they ask for help. Help me get dressed. Help me eat. Help me go to the bathroom. We need help when we're born. We need help when we're close to death. But all in between that, we're mastered by this illusion that at times we don't need help. The first sermon I ever preached at Fondren in Dueling Hall, those almost six years ago, was from Psalm 121. I looked to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Another sign, I would call it the third sign of conversion, beyond crisis and surrender. It just comes with a cost. I've taught this before, but there's a cute little preacher illustration with a pig and a chicken. And the chicken says to the pig, let's go have a bacon and egg breakfast. To which the pig responds, oh no, a bacon and egg breakfast for you is a contribution. But for me, it's total commitment. Now, there's a cost, and the costs are different. If you're a Buddhist, and I know one who's trusted Jesus, there's barely any negativity toward that. If you're an Orthodox Jew and you accept Christianity and are baptized, likely your family is planning your funeral. And in our place, in our state, we can be shielded. From some of the cost. But there's a cost. And we follow a savior. A man named Jesus. Who said hey before you sign up. I want you to count the cost. And if you look in Acts chapter 9. Anybody that has an open Bible. I'll give you a second. Just glance at verse 23 and 24. I'll make a loose. I'll allude to it loosely. But in verse 23 and 24. Paul's learning that he will have to suffer. He'll have to suffer many things. He's got to count the cost. What are the costs in following Jesus? 
There could be family costs, marital costs, business costs. Remember the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, here's what you'll need to do. He wanted to see, Jesus wanted to see if his heart was all his. And it says he went away sad. He, he counted the cost and he didn't like the cost. He did a cost-benefit analysis and said, mm, I'm not going to follow this man. I like, I want to be my own God. There's a cost. Fourth thing, fourth sign of conversion beyond crisis and surrender and the fact that it comes with a cost is there, there's this awareness of sin. Let me tell you about this man, Saul, that became Paul. He says in Romans 7, he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do those things. I want to do things. I have the desire to do these things, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. And there are things that I'm, I'm doing that I don't want to do, and there are warring factions within me. He says, a wretched man am I finish this amazing grace how sweet the sound that would you be louder amazing grace how sweet the sound that years ago there was a particular denomination I'm not going to call them out there's a particular denomination that made a motion a bunch of religious people God help us they made a motion to change the words to John Newton's song now that's John Newton's song. He was a slave trader. Converted to be a slave liberator. To see every life, everyone created in the image of God, every life with dignity and worth. And one particular domination many years ago said, let's change the words to saved a wretch like me. To strengthen, to strengthen and improve us. The idea is it to refer to ourselves as wretched is just so humiliating. I want to make a motion in front of Fondra Church, call us into a business meeting, that every time we sing Amazing Grace, and sometime we do, that we will always sing that saved a wretch like me. Anybody want to second the motion? All in favor. Because we, because you and I, we're wretched. A wretched man, Paul says. I am. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he had some young guys around him, Timothy in particular, that was really looking up to him because he was just so smart. You know anybody like that? They're just so smart. I don't think we have any Pauls in the room. we got some smart people. I don't know if we have any Pauls, but he was just so smart. They were just looking up to him. And he was a trailblazing, maverick, misfit missionary, and he was a stud. And Paul said, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor. An insolent opponent of God's church. But here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. I am chief among sinners. Paul had this awareness of his sin, do we? Jesus told a story, a lot of you know it, I'll quickly make mention of it. He told a story found in Luke chapter 18 where there's a Pharisee. Remember, Saul was a Pharisee. He tells about two men who went to the temple to pray. There was a Pharisee and there was a tax collector. And it says the Pharisee entered the temple and he stood alone. And he prayed a prayer, Lord, thank you that I'm not evil. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a robber. I'm not a thief. And I'm not like this tax collector. Humor in some of Jesus' stories, right? Until it invades our heart. And there's the tax collector. And it says that he stood at a distance. 
He didn't even look up to heaven. You got a big dog. You got a big happy dog at home. Isn't it awesome when they look you in the eyes and they don't break? Like you're the one who breaks away from the stare. Isn't that awesome? Like they're looking at you, man. They love you. They're proud of you. They want to they be with you. What happens when your big happy dog has done something wrong? Do they look at you? <laughs> Far from it. And this tax collector in his shame would not look up. He, the Bible says he smote his breast. Lord, have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. When Jesus told this story, look how he began. Two things I want to point out quickly. This is the beginning of it. Luke 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. When we think we're better and more deserving of people, more deserving than other people, we are sick at the core. And we're so deceived. There's something in you, if you're not careful, you're going to commit your whole life to your own success. And there's that little thing in us that we want to be as rich as Warren Buffett, and as smart as Albert Einstein, and as strong as Andre the Giant, and as sexy as Adam Levine. But Jesus started this community of misfits, and he started this community of misfits, and he said, I want to create a community where it is okay. It's okay to be as strong as Warren Buffett. And as sexy as Albert Einstein. And as smart as Andre the Giant. And nothing like Adam Levine. That's the community Jesus wants. Are we aware of that? Are we aware of that? Four signs of conversion. God will often use a crisis. But there must be a moment of surrender where we cry out, help. We have to count the cost. And we need a great awareness. A great awareness of our sin. You saw the motion. The team is in just a moment going to start, uh, they're going to start making some music. We're going to start rounding toward home. But I want us today to pray. All of you will be invited to stand and to sing. But I want us today to seek Him, to pray. What was my agenda today? Does anybody remember? God is able. He is able. What's most hard for you? What's the hurting? What's the difficult thing? Our God is able. He's able to bring change. He's able.